Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us this week. And we're going to spend much of this week's show focusing on how the government is using its supercomputing resources to help with the coronavirus pandemic. Along those lines, a little later in the show, we'll be joined by Dr. Piyush Marotra, the chief of the Advanced Supercomputing Division at NASA. We're going to begin, though, with DOD's contributions to what's now becoming a government-wide supercomputing consortium. From modeling airflows aboard medical evacuation aircraft to simulating vaccine candidates, the department's supercomputing resources are being brought to bear on many aspects of the pandemic. Several of the department's supercomputers are involved in various aspects of the response. To learn more about them, I talked with Dr. Will McMahon, the director of the DoD High Performance Computing Modernization Program, and Dr. Kevin Newmeyer, the deputy director. I would like to have you start off a little bit by by talking about the high performance computing ecosystem, what it is, and, and and how it works. There's there's a suggestion in the press release anyway that there's also a sort of a whole of government approach to this led out of OSTP. So so talk a bit about how you fit into that broader government wide approach and how COVID type tasking comes down to your individual centers. This is well. Let me let me start off, and then we can ask Kevin to to enumerate. So we are a DoD entity. You called us an ecosystem, so our our mission is really to provide HPC resources across the entire DOD to include the science and technology community, the test and evaluation community, and the acquisition and engineering community. And this ecosystem consists of the supercomputers themselves, the network, the defense research and engineering network that links all those together and all the users together as well as the software expertise it takes to run all, all these computers and use them efficiently. So we, we really act as an independent uh, organization for the DOD. Um, this doesn't mean to say that there aren't other DOD entities that run supercomputers, but ours, our program is funded such that we supply our resources across the DOD at no charge to the user. So the connectivity to the OSTP uh, COVID HP task force, uh, we are not part of that, although when we saw the press release on March 23rd, we did reach out to OSTP and we offered some of our open research uh, compute hours. We have a small system that we use to serve the university community. so we offered that. In addition to that, we reached out to our greater service components and our, our members that represent the services on our, our on one of our boards and said, hey, we have resources. You know, this is this is a government-wide uh, issue. Uh, we want to make our resources available for those in the DOD that have, have uh, problems with, with COVID-19. Kevin, you want to add to that? Fair enough, sir. And the way the uh, OSTP is handling this with the COVID HPC consortium is they basically put up an open call for proposals. Uh, Those proposals come into the Office of Science Technology Policy. They evaluate them or with with some other volunteers from some of the other universities and and things in the the country. Evaluate those proposals against uh, the tasking and then match them up with the uh, best supercomputing resources that have been made available from either uh, the government, uh, you know, we've made ours available. DOE has made uh, made available. National Science Foundation, some others, uh, NASA, as well as uh, some of the private industry resources, and they match up the the tasking with the best available resource. Uh, today, we have not had a had a tasking from uh, OSTP, but we're standing by to support as uh, as required. 
And yet I understand there are several projects you're already working on. So as soon as you announced that um, you, you, know, you were going to make those resources available, yeah. how long did it take for requests to start coming in from across the DoD community? Who was kind of first in the gate? Not very long. <laughs> we had a request uh, come in pretty quickly from the Air Force to make some hours available on the computer to support a study of how airflow moves with inside of a cargo aircraft in case they had to be used for uh, aeromedical evacuations. We got that with, uh, I think, on the, uh, the 23rd of uh, March, and then we started the computers, uh, made them available on the 24th. Any more you can say about that specific project and, and how supercomputing is, is useful for that, that sort of modeling? One of the main issues or things that was applied to this is the, is the computer code Kestrel that, that does aerodynamics, but it's, it is set up, it's a physics-based code that's set up to work this exact type of problem, although uh, droplets in the air are not, not really a military problem, but it's still, since it's physics-based, it has a very wide application. So thinking the cargo bay and the crew compartment of the aircraft where you actually have to break this problem down into very small spatial pieces, let's say, you know, one-inch cubes and, and model the whole aircraft with one-inch cubes. And then you have to step through the problem very slowly so that you can get a not only a spatial but a temporal in-time view of what's going on. The code steps through time with this huge number of uh, computational cells and the power of supercomputing is that you can actually take this problem and break it up into little pieces and send it to individual processors. So if this is just an example. These time frames aren't accurate. I'm using it just to demonstrate the supercomputing application. But if it took an hour on 10 processors, if you broke the problem up and put it on 1,000 processors, then you would, break the, you would reduce the time it took to do that calculation down to one hundredth of the of the time it takes to to do the problem that allows you to do much more many problems in time so that you can get parameter studies done and so you can look at different concepts of how many patients where they're placed in the aircraft how close they are to various parts of the ventilation system and get a really good view of let decisions makers get a view of how this problem might affect the crew during these situations. Kevin, got anything to add? It's a complex problem. You're looking at, you know, tens of thousands of these cubic inches inside of a, a C-17, for example, and how that, you know, airflow moves moves through something that really wasn't designed to worry about an airborne threat uh, inside of the aircraft. So, so it's safe to say you wouldn't be able to easily work this problem if you didn't have the supercomputing super assets, and more importantly, the code that was optimized to run on supercomputing. And I know another application that's that's pertinent here is that you're also using supercomputing to evaluate virus treatment candidates or vaccine candidates for coronavirus. Was that a similar situation where you had software applications already in the supercomputing environment that, that could be relatively quickly applied to this problem? This one was actually a little bit different. In this case, uh, there was a researcher at the Southwest Research Institute that became under contract with the Army, and his code was set up to run on a... Uh, a desktop workstation, uh, you know, a very small, less powerful computer. On that computer, it took him, you know, several days to weeks to run, you know, a million test runs. With the advantage of the supercomputer, we took, we used our experts to to parallelize it, as to be able to spread it across uh, thousands of cores on our supercomputer. Uh, this allows the program to run uh, 
orders of magnitude faster. So we can look at, instead of looking at 2 million things over three weeks, we can look at 40 million compounds in, in less than a week. That's the, you know, the advantage of being able to divide this problem because each, each problem can run with a different set of uh, variables, but they all run at the same time. It's a, we'd call an embarrassingly parallel problem in many respects. Hmm. And, and in that case, what, what are you actually modeling in that supercomputing environment? What's, what's the work being done by all that compute? Uh, the work being done in this case is looking at a, uh, how potential vaccine chemical compounds would adhere to the protein in the coronavirus as a means of you know, what is the most effective way to develop a vaccine or develop a treatment pattern what are the best vectors to get it against the COVID virus itself? And I know you aren't immunologists, but but does that kind of work potentially speed up the process of, of getting to an effective vaccine? Uh, what it allows you to do is eliminate the things that are probably not going to work. So you can get down, you can narrow down your field of actually going to the real test procedure to high probabilities of success in a much, much shorter time frame. It's similar to how we do the same type of work to support uh, weapons engineering. You know, what are the possible, what are the most effective designs that may work in a given situation? So we, we narrow the space down and, and make the, uh, the turnaround time faster. And I understand you all are also involved in some ways in the situation that's unfolding now with the Theodore Roosevelt in, in Guam and other areas of the Pacific as it relates to coronavirus. Talk, talk me through a little bit of that work that's going on right now. Okay, in that case, uh, this is a, a tasking that came to the Army Corps of Engineers and uh, our, our parent lab, the Engineering Research and Development Center down at uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi, is a, is a parent organization of the Corps of Engineers. And in that case, they took a, we helped them take a computer model that looks at disease spread, uh, how people would transmit the disease amongst each other, and then take that code and again, set it up to run instead of on a desktop application, to run it in a supercomputer application. So this case, we're supporting the work that the Corps of Engineers is doing to support FEMA and uh, some of the other agencies, the government, figuring out how to model the spread of the disease so that it may then take the best measures to mitigate that spread uh, going forward. What proportion of your supercomputing capabilities are actually available for this? Because I know there's, there's at least some part of it where you can't run academic research on it because it's restricted to DOD use, right? That's correct. And that, that, that is the, the uh, approach we're taking. We, our resources, except for the small uh, system that, that the academics can use, is, is reserved for DOD problems. So if, if the need arises, we will, we will uh, uh, prioritize our resources to make as many available as possible since this, you know, this is a government-wide fight. The DOD has lots of problems in this in this space. So if, if asked, we will continue to prioritize and make our resources available to those that need them. We're here as a support. The, the researchers that, that are exercising the codes um, and producing the answers, we want to make sure that, you know, they, they get credit and shout out for the work they're doing. We, we are actually just enabling that work to happen through the use of our resources. And we do make our resources available to... Uh, academia and the private sector if they're under contract to DOD. Yeah, that's an excellent point. You know, it's not just DOD researchers. You know, SpaceX, for instance, has has uh, used our resources in, in their Falcon and Falcon Heavy Lift uh, uh, work they're doing for the Air Force. That's Dr. Will McMahon, the director of the DOD High Performance Computing Modernization Program. Also talking with Dr. Kevin Newmeyer, the deputy director. We'll come back and talk more after a short break. This is on DOD on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servu. 
back on Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And we're talking with Dr. Will McMahon, the director of the DOD High Performance Computing Modernization Program, and Dr. Kevin Newmeyer, the deputy director. We've been discussing how DOD is deploying its supercomputing resources toward the COVID-19 fight. Well, let me ask a more general question about, about supercomputing, just because... You know, I, I think a lot of people are used to the idea now that if, if you want a lot of compute capacity, pretty much anyone can get what they want on demand for as long as they want through a cloud service provider. Can, can you just give me some, you know, some, some comparative sense of what DOD supercomputing capacity is compared to what, you know, folks could get from a commercial environment like that? Yeah, so we have in our ecosystem, about 21 computers that represent about 1.5 million core hours and about 70 petaflops of compute capacity. So we, our ecosystem together is, is fairly large. So, in fact, we are, we are embracing the cloud ourselves for cases where, A, it makes sense for us to do compute in the cloud and, B, for a surge capability. But the cloud providers that provide true high-performance computing cloud uh, cycles, they're, they're using the same hardware that, that we are. So for us, it's a little bit of a, a surge capacity, but I also want to mention the fact that in our ecosystem, we rely heavily on the development of the software and the optimization of the software to make sure they run efficiently on HPC resources. And, you know, that's not a function that the cloud is currently offering. So our intersection of the cloud is going to become greater as time goes on and the cloud HPC environment matures such that they can provide the same compute resources that we can with the optimized codes. In, in, in general, the uh, commercial clouds are optimized for traditional IT workloads, whereas when we design and, and have our systems built, we're designing them to solve the problems that are important to Department of Defense and things like hypersonics or uh, data analytics, things that are specific DOD type problem sets, which require a, a, you know, a different kind of computer architecture to run most efficiently. Yeah, that, that's a perfect lead into my next question. I was just going to ask, you know, in normal times when you're not supporting the, the response to a global pandemic, what, what are the sorts of, of problems that DOD high performance computing works on? So by definition, those, those problems are Things that are important to the Department of Defense, uh, Dr. Griffin, who reads, leads the OS, uh, uh, S&T for the OSD, um, he has 10 S&T priorities. Uh, I won't rattle them all off, but directed energy, hypersonics, cybersecurity, um, and others. They're, they're out there readily available for people to look up. So um, we concentrate on making sure that our resources are applied to those S&T priorities. But realistically, we are here to support also the, the DOD acquisition engineering uh, community and every major weapon system, when you're talking about planes, submarines, ships, aircraft, helicopters, ground vehicles, you know, our, our program and our, our, our resources touch those programs. And our, our role in this is to do as much of the testing evaluation and early S&P uh, down select um, so that so that these weapon systems can reach the warfighter faster, and and when they finally build prototypes, those prototypes have already been through a virtual testing and flushing out, so that the timeline in order to get those weapon systems into the hands of the end users is is shortened, and the product is much better. 
it's almost like a virtual range for for weapon systems that haven't been built yet. In many respects, that's right. And, you know, with the we call it you know virtual modeling to be able to you know we can now they can now design an aircraft and basically put it through its maneuvers uh, in the computer before they actually you know start bending steel. We've done a lot of work with the to support the Army's uh, future vertical lift program and the joint. Uh, development of the next generation of helicopters using this virtual modeling uh, technique to accelerate the uh, acquisition process. That's Dr. Kevin Newmeyer, Deputy Director of the DoD High Performance Computing Modernization Program, along with Dr. Will McMahon, the Program Director. Another short break here, and we will get a perspective from NASA on supercomputing and how that agency is applying those resources toward COVID-19. This is On DoD on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Thanks for listening to Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we continue our discussions on the federal government's use of supercomputing to deal with the coronavirus pandemic, as we talked about earlier in the hour with our guests from the DoD High Performance Computing Program, the government is marshalling much of its supercomputer capacity toward this. That includes NASA and its high-performance computing complex. For some perspective from that agency, Federal News Network's Tom Temin spoke with the Division Chief for NASA Advanced Supercomputing, Dr. Piyush Mirotra. We have several supercomputers at the center that we have at the NASA Ames Research Center here in Silicon Valley, and they pretty much uh, utilize at a heavy rate, about 85-90% at all times. But uh, when this was all set up, it, there was a reserve for national priorities outside of the agency's missions. And so what we have done is we have uh, proposed that we use that reservation for helping any COVID-related research that may be proposed by folks in in the country. And how would that work technically? Suppose someone has a problem and they've written, say, an algorithm. What do they do with it? Mm -hmm. Generally, most of the folks that are working in this area have actually run the code somewhere else or have written parallel code. And so then we have expertise here to help them port that code onto our machines. So anything specialized that is needed for running on our machines, we have in-house expertise to help them port the code, optimize the code, and then run the codes after that. So we, as part of the allocation that we give them, we give them that kind of labor support. Is it accurate to so, say that in recent years with computers, supercomputers being built out of standard parts, just lots of them with special interconnects, that it's easier to port programs from one to the other than it might have been, say, in the 70s and 80s? That is true. Some of the supercomputers do have some specialized hardware, like, for example, the NVIDIA GPUs, which are also being used for scientific computation. And in that case, the codes have to be ported to those specialized processors. But in general, like you're saying, because we're using standard off-the-shelf processors, the code, to a large extent, are portable from one place to another. Now, relative to the code that you're running, the algorithms that you're running, is the data, and that's a much bigger problem, I'm assuming. And how do people get the data in there that they're going to run their algorithms against? It depends on the particular problem and on the particular code that they're reading. Some some of them, uh, the data uh, inputs needs are fairly small, or their databases, for example, the molecular structure of the proteins or the molecular structure of the drugs, but they're not that humongous at this point 
And so, yes, they'll have to be transported in, into our system, transferred there so that they can use it. But I don't see that as a very big problem as such. So relative to a black hole, the data sets are pretty small. Relative to a black hole or relative to some of the observational data that uh, Earth Sciences at NASA produces, which is in petabytes, most of the databases is in more terabytes rather than where a petabyte is a thousand terabytes. So instead of being multi-terabytes, it's only in you know less than hundred terabytes. And handling that kind of data these things these days is pretty easy. Got it. We're speaking with Dr. Piyush Merotra. He's division chief of NASA's Advanced Supercomputing. And just for people that like speeds and feeds, give us a sense of how much capacity NASA does have out there. So. Uh, we have three systems here with a total of about 15 petaflops. A petaflop is one quadrillion floating point operations per second. The latest one that we have just have got on board is about 3.7. To give you a sense of what a petaflop is, if, uh, for example, the population of the US, U.S., about 350 million people, did one floating point operation per second, it would take a year to do what a one petaflop system can do in a second. So that you get the kind of uh, uh, power that you have that in one second you could do, uh, a, a machine could do, it'll take about a year for 350 million people working together to do. So it sounds like the issues that are needed for this research in coronavirus might not be possible to get done in any reasonable time were it not for supercomputing. I think that is that is absolutely true, that um, uh, these days uh, the machines are really helping. You know, a lot of the drug re- uh, research and the uh, uh, vaccine research has been experimental, but what is happening now is that with the kind of supercomputers that are available, you can do the modeling of the drugs or the virus, the proteins in the virus, how they fold, how do they bind to each other. You can do quantum mechanical simulations. And because you have uh, such large machines, uh, you can do it at a much faster rate. So uh, there's a chance that in the next few weeks that some of these simulations can actually produce some uh, results, which then, so that the uh, folks in the wet lab can look at that as an initial starting point and then do experiments on that, reducing the amount of space that the wet labs people have to go through to figure out particular drug works or not. The supercomputers are there to help, and we are there to have people who want to use it to fight the pandemic. Do you have a sense of who is going to be using your capacity? So this process as such has started very recently since, uh, you know, we started getting proposed. There's a review committee that has been set up at the national level. We started getting proposals uh, just Monday. So we've received a few uh, proposals. And basically the committee is looking at the merits of the proposals and then matching them to the multiple providers that have uh, volunteered their resources. Uh, We are one of them. There are the um, volunteers. And so they're doing a matching process. Uh, At this point, we haven't matched any of the proposals that are coming through, but we're hoping that some university professors, some professors from other labs, uh, and even private citizens are proposing to this uh, process. I was going to say this also includes commercial interests that might have good research programs would also get this capacity along with academics? Yes. So... Uh, on both sides, in fact, the resource providers, you have federal agencies like DOE and NSF and NASA providing, the academic institutions like MIT and RPI, 
Uh, and then uh, Google, Microsoft, and Amazon Web Services are also providing their resources. On the proposal sides, also the PIs are coming in from the universities, they're coming in from the federal agencies and private citizens also. So the panel that is doing all of this matching is a multi-agency affair then too, correct? Yes, and not only multi-agency, but multi, I mean, commercial folks are also on there, some academic folks are there. So, um, yes, the review committee is pretty large, including uh, subject matter experts and uh, experts in the high-performance computing area. And for the agencies that will be getting, I guess, new clients, you could call them, it almost sounds like med school matching. Would that work maybe delay or push back some of the work that the agencies would otherwise be doing on their own supercomputers? Uh, possibly, but as we look at what we have to do, for example, for NASA, we may have to reprioritize the work a little bit, but it depends on how many outside proposals come in here. And is there a timeline for the decisions? We're trying to do the decisions in the matching process as quickly as possible. Okay, so the proposals come in, and within a day, we are uh, uh, doing the matching process. Then it's up to the provider to negotiate with the PI as to how they get on board. And we try to do the best matching that the, the kind of resources required by the PI are the ones available at the provider's uh, organization. And once you've done that, then negotiations happen, the onboarding happens. But we're hoping that this first uh, projects will start working almost immediately. Because some of the proposals already have used the same machine, so it may be easy for them to get on there and then start having impact within a few weeks. Dr. Piyush Marotra, the chief of the Advanced Supercomputing Division at NASA, talking with Federal News Network's Tom Temin. One more break, and we will switch gears when we come back and get a preview of some of what the House is teeing up for this year's defense authorization bill once members get back into session. This is on DOD on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Network, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. In this last bit of the show, we're going to look ahead to a couple of the priorities we might see for the House version of this year's NDAA as that legislation starts to take shape belatedly this year. Formal work on the bill has been pushed back because of coronavirus, but members are already starting to propose ideas. The top Republican on the House Armed Services Committee introduced another round of acquisition reforms earlier this month. Texas Republican Mac Thornberry is focusing on DOD's requirements and sustainment processes this year. He described some of the changes he's proposing on a conference call with reporters. We're going to listen to a short segment of that presentation. As you know, uh, from 2015 on, every year I've introduced uh, a standalone bill intended to be included in the NDAA, but introducing it uh, or at least releasing it separately about a month ahead of time so that people would have a chance to provide feedback and suggestions. Uh, most of this, of course, has been on acquisition reform, and part of my theory was nobody's smart enough to know all the implications of moving things around in the system. So put it out there, let people have their shot at it, make adjustments as appropriate, and then uh, try to add it to the bill. So that's what I'm trying to do again this year. Obviously, we had to postpone our subcommittee and committee markups later this month, but we want to be ready to go 
as soon as Congress is able to reassemble. So that's part of the reason I wanted to go ahead and put these bills out there, get that feedback loop going now, uh, so that we're as ready as we can possibly be for whenever uh, things kick off again and and uh, we do our committee markup. So it, it starts with uh, reform of the requirements process. This is not really something we've tackled before. We've you know before what I've been trying to do is buying as is reforming how we buy things. But the Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Hyten, is focused on reform of the requirements process since he chairs the JROC. Uh, we are trying to work along the same line. Um, and, and so the requirements process is, is where we start. We also have some provisions in this acquisition bill related to sustainment. You all have heard over and over again, like I have, we spend more money to sustain a program than we do in buying it to begin with. In previous NDAAs, we've said you got to have a sustainment strategy before you buy something. What we did not do, however, was require a sustainment strategy across systems. So, you know, just simplistically, if you're going to work on uh, Air Force uh, fighters, uh, overseas, how are you going to do Navy, Marine Corps fighter airplanes across the, the systems, integrate those things together so we're not just talking about sustainment of each individual silo, but a broader strategy. It turns out in 2010, there's a requirement kind of like this that just kind of wilted away. And so we're trying to bring back this idea that you have to take a comprehensive look across systems as well as uh, a, a plan for the life cycle of a system. Uh, again, this is where most of our money goes, so I think it's appropriate. There's, there's several provisions, I won't go through them all, where we try to codify the requirement that the Secretary of Defense, because it's got to start with him, have uh, a reform effort that he pushes. And, and so I guess one way to look at it is you think about what Esper and Milley did with Night Court in the Army, translate that into the whole DOD and put a requirement that part of your job as Secretary of Defense is continual reform with dollar targets to make clear that that is part of what we expect from a Secretary of Defense. Uh, just briefly, we, we also have quarterly briefings required of the industrial base. Now, there'll be each quarter it'll be a different section of the industrial base. But going back to my point, one of the things COVID-19 points out is the fragility of our industrial base, especially with small and middle-sized companies. And obviously, with the dependence on other countries, this has been highlighted even before COVID-19. So uh, just like we have quarterly uh, readiness briefings, you know, regular briefings on the state of our personnel and other things, the industrial base has to be included in that. And then we also uh, are taking the next step 
towards streamlining Title X and reorganizing the acquisition statutes. Now, I recognize that's not exactly something that uh, gets most people's excited. But we, we started this with a, last year, I think, with a table of contents. And everywhere I go visiting companies, they talk about how complicated it is for small and middle-sized companies to figure out what the law is related to doing business with the Department of Defense. And, and so this streamlining and simplifying the code is a big deal to enable some of these non-traditional and small and mid-sized companies to do business with DOD. So uh, you can't do it all at once. You got to do it step by step. There's some really good, smart people who are working on this project, and it's taken longer than I wanted it to. But we have the next steps of that in here, too. Again, Congressman Mac Thornberry, the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, talking with reporters about the proposals he's making this year for acquisition reform. And this year's NDA may also end up containing several major reforms for how the government handles cyber issues. Rhode Island Democrat Jim Langevin is the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee's Subcommittee on Intelligence, Emerging Threats, and Capabilities. He's also a member of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which has recommended that the government set up a Bureau of Cyber Statistics. That's one issue Langevin wants to tackle in this year's bill. He talked about it with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. This is something I've been talking about for several years now, and what would always been gnawing at me is, you know, okay, if we if we do what we think is adopting cybersecurity best practices and, and the latest technology, or even adopting the NIST framework, just by way of example, how do we know that we're going to be that much more cyber secure? And the reality is, uh, we really we would be better served to have uh, hard data to make informed policy decision or, or for um, CEOs uh, and uh, CFOs and CISOs, uh, when they're making their, their recommendations, making their decisions about what type of cybersecurity technologies to purchase and deploy, that we had hard data to back up uh, what will make them that much more cybersecure. So it just makes sense that we we have this recommendation to, to create a, uh, and the information and incentive structure for basically the private sector, the better, better value uh, cybersecurity and make business decisions that reflect that and would help government as well in the same type of decisions. So one of the recommendations is creation of the Bureau of Cyber Statistics. So we basically, as I've said before, we can't understand what we can't measure. And currently there's a very dearth of robust and consistent data. So basically proposes that we set up an independent agency within the Department of Commerce to collect, process, analyze, and, and disseminate statistical data uh, on cybersecurity, uh, cyber incidents, and the cyber ecosystem. Basically, and, and equally important is that uh, here that we, we should, the data should be anonymized and basically should be publicly available. You mentioned that you had, uh, this was an idea that you've had maybe for some time. Had you ever tried to introduce it in legislation? Have you ever brought it up to in, in other reports that we've, you've been a part of uh, other commissions over the last, uh, you know, eight, eight, 10, 12 years? No, I don't think we've, uh, we've done anything in terms of actually proposing the creation of the Bureau of Cyber Statistics. And, you know, I, I've been trying to get my arms around what the best route to go is. And it, 
certainly more and more we discussed it within the context of the commission. This is how it got formalized. But you know, the, the idea of the Bureau of Cyber Statistics is not a new idea. You know, the, the need for uh, metrics has been harping though on need for for a while. And a good example, by the way, of you know how policymakers need good data to make good policy would be if you looked at uh, the model would be the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which provides solid data for, for industry and policymakers, uh, for example, on, on things like uh, unemployment and uh, and really that helps set policy and business practices. So there, there are really benefits of the office in both government and industry. And, uh, and this is something I really champion in the, as an initiative in the Cyber uh, Swearing Commission. So, you know, you, you, you think about it, you know, we, we want CISOs and the, the CFOs to be talking the same language, uh, you know, when they're talking to the CEO and, and we want everybody to be able to understand what we're trying to get across here. And, and so that's why it just makes sense to, to have this type of a, of a structure in place. You know, again, the, the, the Bureau of Cyber Statistics is, is not a new idea. Uh, it's just a, it's a new idea in, in Solarium. I just want to clarify that. This idea of, of creating a, a bureau, how would it work? I mean, do you get a sense? I know this commission doesn't necessarily go into that type of detail, but if it was, you, and I know the commission report said it could be set up in commerce or wherever is most appropriate, but do you get a sense of how it would work, where it would collect data from? Get, walk me through some ideas. Basically, I said it would be created in the, the Department of, uh, of, of Commerce, and they would be charged with collecting and processing and analyzing and disseminating the statistical data uh, on cybersecurity, on cyber incidents, and the, the cyber ecosystem. And, uh, and, and then in, uh, anonymize the data and then, and then make it uh, publicly uh, available. But the, the, the goal around it is to help kind of everybody see the, the, the same data and hopefully come to the same, maybe the same conclusions. But one idea in, in terms of data collection, one idea is that we basically is that uh, we have is requiring insurers to provide data on uh, when they pay a claim. And that would help us to understand exactly what happened and and you know what type of uh, mechanisms were in place to protect uh, the organization's cyber networks and what worked and what didn't. But it also require government incident data to feed into it as well. Do you think that there's an appetite to set something like this up? I mean, given all the data breaches we've seen over the last you know five, seven years, this idea of, of proving the value of cybersecurity, people seem to, to get behind that, but, right? But can, will, they, will, will lawmakers or others go f- far enough to want to set something up that will actually collect the statistics? Do you get a sense? I, I think that there, if people, especially policymakers or decision makers, are in fact hungry for, uh, for a, this type of data to help them make informed uh, decisions. I, I've used the example before uh, where um, a lot of times maybe the, the CISO and the CFO speak different languages, they talk and pass each other in, in some ways, and it would help businesses on the understand cyber risks. In business terms, the legislative front, we also you know, can work with the FCC to help companies understand you know, what their obligations that they have under the, the Sarbanes-Oxby Oxby rules and uh, basically understand cyber risk and their, their internal financial controls. But, uh, you know, and, and by the way, insurers desperately uh, need uh, this type of data. 
it would help them as they are writing their policies. They can say, okay, they know uh, by way of the data that's collected and being analyzed that they can determine, okay, if you employ these type of tools, uh, your your insurance risk is here. If you're, you know, if you unless if you don't invest enough in these tools or you invest tools that are less effective, then you know you have another level of uh, of insurance premium. You know, in, in many ways, it's it's what we see with you know the the auto industry. We see it with other insurance industries as well, where if you buy you know a, a car. Uh, that has a V6 engine that's a sports car, maybe your insurance is a little higher. And if you're a male, if you're a female, <laughs> it may be a little different. But yeah. if you buy a minivan that's very safe with all the extra features and you're a very safe driver, your insurance rates go down. That's why I think that this is, it's a fascinating idea because I think it's really speaking to the big issue that we haven't been able to get to over the years, which is, you know, what's the value of cybersecurity? Right. It's, it's like the, the argument of, you know why? Why did we finally start adding seatbelts in cars? Right? Well, they finally had uh, hard data to show that in, in accidents where the, the the driver, the passenger was wearing a seatbelt, uh, lives were saved, injuries were reduced, and so it just became self-evident at that point as to why seatbelts were added in cars. We, we want to have that same level of visibility, transparency, and and the cybersecurity uh, tools throughout the year, and what will uh, keep us safe, and which ones are less effective. Uh, you know, right now, I think a lot of people act on on gut uh, that you know instinct, uh, or it might be a sales pitch of, of you know why you should adopt a new cybersecurity uh, protection or tool. But there's a big question sometimes as to well, how do you know? Uh, for example, uh, if you if a company adopts two-factor authentication, you know if if you can show that you know it's going to buy down your risk and, and you're, you're going to take care of uh, 80% of your, your cyber uh, vulnerabilities and your problems if you have two-factor authentication. That, to me, would be, uh, for example, a tool that would come highly recommended and, and make everyone more cyber secure. But absent the data, you know, the policymakers, decision makers have to say, how do you know? What's your plans with not just this idea of uh, the Bureau of Cyber Statistics, but more broadly the Cyber Solarium Report? What's the next steps uh, if, if we ever get back to having hearings or, or do, you, do you expect to take some of this, some of the recommendations and turn them into legislation? Walk me through what you're yes, thinking. Absolutely. So uh, hopefully we will be by this coronavirus crisis that we're facing uh, sooner rather than later, although uh, it looks like, you know, we're, we're, we're a good several weeks out before that happens. But once we do get back, uh, having hearings as well as introducing legislation, uh, we're going to have some 75 recommendations or so from the Solarium Commission report, uh, much of which will be turned into legislation. And, uh, and we'd like to see these bills work the way uh, through Congress. Um, you know, this, uh, this kind of the next steps are, are it's kind of the short, uh, medium, and long term focus for what bills or legislation we can get through. Some of them, by the way, will be, will be handled in my, in my subcommittee and uh, House Armed Services. I chair the Intelligence Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee. And wherever uh, it's appropriate, where some of these recommendations can go uh, into, uh, into my mark or into the full committee's mark, we're going to do that. But we're looking at you know, the short term. One of my top priorities along with the Bureau of Cyber Statistics. Uh, we'll also be creating the, uh, the National Cyber Director 
as well as the Bureau of Cyberspace Security and Emerging Technologies at, at the State Department, uh, as well as uh, Administrative Subpoena Authority for, uh, for CISA uh, at the Department of Homeland Security. On the medium term, uh, whether it's medium or long term, uh, medium or short term, I guess uh, either, either what could be categorized as a medium or short term proposal would be this creation of the Bureau of Cyber Statistics. And then the long term uh, goal of, of legislation making its way through Congress is congressional reform. Right now, uh, we have some 80 different committees and subcommittees that can claim some jurisdiction uh, over cybersecurity. And that doesn't allow for uh, really solid, coordinated, uh, well-coordinated oversight or, or to be able to move with the agility with which we need to move, but we need to, to, to move legislation through the Congress uh, on, a, on a cybersecurity issue. So what I we propose is congressional form and creation of a select committee on cybersecurity so that we we have members on there that develop an expertise on cybersecurity as well as um, staff to uh, that uh, both on both fronts we we need more people in Congress that are cyber experts and this would certainly help uh, to move us in that direction if we create a select committee on cybersecurity both the House and the Senate. That's Congressman Jim Langevin, Chairman of the House Armed Services Committee's Subcommittee on Intelligence, Emerging Threats, and Capabilities, talking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Just before that, we heard from Mac Thornberry, the Armed Services Committee's ranking Republican on his ideas for acquisition reform this year. Earlier in the hour, we also spoke with officials from NASA and DOD on how they're using supercomputing to help with the COVID-19 pandemic. If you missed those discussions, we'll post this week's full show, as always, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash ondod. Also, in our podcast feed, subscribe to ondod on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's program. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, My Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.